0: Welcome to On the Balcony. I'm Michael Kohler, I'm a leadership coach, I'm a facilitator, and I'm your host. In our kickoff season, we will examine Ron Heifetz's landmark book, Leadership Without Easy Answers. We'll also explore applying some of his concepts in our own practice. Leadership Without Easy Answers is the book behind the most provocative class at Harvard University. It has impacted generations of change agents, executives, and people who care about developing others. Here's why. The study of leadership is a really young and some might say immature field. Historically, leadership studies were often no more than great man theory, looking at presidents and CEOs in very simplistic and limiting ways. Then, People describe the difference between transactional and transformative leadership and writing about the difference between management and leadership. And that has been helpful. But definitions of what leadership actually is remain abstract and not really aligned. The old joke goes, two leadership professors would rather share the same toothbrush than the same definition of leadership. So then in the early 1990s, in a time of hope, After the Berlin Wall falls, the world is opening up. When Mandela becomes president and the IRA puts down weapons in Northern Ireland, at a time of despair, when we also see Serbia, Texarajevo, the Rwandan genocide, and the Los Angeles race riots, Ron Heifetz writes a book about leadership that breaks away from what has been done before. And that really helps us to understand why some things are going well and other things are going really poorly in the world. And here we are today, 30 years later, and Heifetz's concepts remain relevant to our current hopes and despair around big challenges of the world. And these concepts are still pioneering. Here are three of the biggest of his ideas. One, leadership is a practice, it's a verb. It can be exercised from wherever you sit in the organizational chart or in your community, whether you have a lot of authority or little. Leadership is a choice you can exercise at any moment or not. There's no such thing as a great leader. There's only moments of great leadership. And it often comes from many places and many people. A second big idea is leadership. Mobilizes people to do difficult work. That is where the distinction between adaptive and technical challenges comes in. Different people have different terms complex, and complicated, and routine and wicked. But technical and adaptive give us a greater sense of what is required of people. Technical problems are routine problems, where the problem is clear and the solution is clear, and all we need is expertise. Adaptive problems need new capacities, new learning, and unlearning. And the work of leadership is managing that process. And the third big idea is, in order to understand how to mobilize people, you need to understand the ecosystem and the different perspectives of the various stakeholders, including the ones that are resistant. Unlike what you may have heard before, it is not that people are resisting change. People love change if it's in their favor. Nobody gives back the winning lottery ticket or the room upgrade. What people resist is loss, real loss or perceived loss. And in order to understand why people are not making progress, despite better knowledge, you need to understand their losses, material losses, loss of competence, identity, relationships or loss of deeply held beliefs and ways of being. Managing loss is a core task in the practice of leadership. As a German, studying feds and these three big ideas really, really helped me understand the rise of Nazi Germany and our efforts in dealing with our difficult past in a very different light. But let me pause here. This is as much lecture as you'll ever get in the show. I'll stop talking about the framework right now and instead share with you how we will engage with the material in this show, which may be slightly different than what you expect. It will not be academic. It won't review or critique the whole content of the book or the adaptive leadership framework. Instead, we look at the book and its impact more deeply with love and rigor and ask, how does it speak to us? in our own practice of leadership. Each episode will do two things. In the first part, I'm visited by a guest. This week, it's going to be Rosie Greenberg and I'll introduce her a little bit more in a moment. Rosie and every guest moving forward will bring a sliver of the text and together we'll chew on it deeply for more insights and application. For those of you who are avid readers, I invite you to read along. Each episode will cover a chapter of the book going in order from beginning to end. In the second half of the show, you can join me on my own developmental journey. I will go out to my colleagues and ask for some coaching around the question, where can I, Michael, practice more leadership? Today's episode, I'll be joined by my colleague, Andy Cahill. That's a little later. All right, let's begin. I'd like to introduce you to my wonderful colleague and friend, Rosie Greenberg, to discuss the introduction in Chapter 1 with the title Values in Leadership. We'll explore these chapters through the theme of silence. What does it mean to be in silence and to interpret silence? We'll talk about the intersection of silence and identity and also explore how silence can be a leadership intervention. Rosie is a leadership coach, an an artist, and most of the times, she combines these two practices in one, as she did when she co created the cover art of our podcast. On her website, she writes, She spent 34 years trying to be less messy, but realized it's actually way funner to just embrace it all the mess. I figured, as I embark on this new creative project, our podcast, something. That can be also filled with mess it felt only fitting to invite rosie as my first guest quick heads up this episode includes language around challenges of racism and the holocaust let's dive right in hi michael hey rosie welcome so good to see you
1: you too thank you Hmm. yeah it's good to be here
0: so we'll get started today as we'll always get started With a brief summary of the chapter. And and today we're going to look at the introduction and chapter one of Leadership Without Easy Answers. And I'm curious to hear what ideas, what one or two ideas stood out or three stood out for you, Rosie.
1: Yeah, it feels like in the introduction, he's really grounding us in who he is and kind of where he's coming from and all of this and where the theory comes from. And I was really struck by these three pieces that he brings around looking at symptoms and finding the underlying causes within a whole system that he said comes from the medical field and then the adaptation and what it means to adapt coming from biology. And then the sense of authority relationships coming from um, being a doctor and then holding tension that comes from music And, and that those really ground the whole theory itself
0: yeah wow that's so interesting it's almost like he's he's laying out the theory in a condensed version in that introduction in chapter one right and and you know like you you know it's coming you know deep dive but like it's it's all already in there
1: exactly and i love how he does it so rooted in who he is and what he brings to it and the positionality that he comes from yeah
0: i'll throw in like you know two additional pieces that kind of complement really with with what you say, which is like, I think, and and really relate to like his core contributions in this field, which is really clarifying some distinctions in the field of leadership and kind of busting some of the myths uh, around leadership. The, The first one is leadership is not personality. Leadership is not a set of tools. Leadership is not a role. You're not a leader, Right. It's a practice, it's an activity, it's a verb, and it's not even influencing, it is mobilizing people to 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 tackle tough problems. And you measure leadership by its impact, do <laughs> people make progress? Right. That that is like kind of the groundbreaking idea that that makes this book very different from many, many other leadership theories. And then related to that, I feel like this whole question around values—the the, this whole idea that leadership is not value-free. F- just because you're following someone doesn't mean they're leading. It doesn't mean that that this is going to a going gonna have a good outcome. And really distinguishing this theory or this framework from from others in the field.
1: Yeah, for sure. He starts teeing up adaptive. Challenges from technical problems, he starts teeing up leadership from authority and the distinction there, and that those are those are going to come. but I think I think a really important piece of the adaptive work is is he's saying that adaptive work is helping people face their tough realities and helping change behaviors and values and helping people cope with losses in a really interesting way that differentiates him, as you're saying from lots of other leadership books and texts that are out there.
0: No, oh, wow. So I, I want to circle back to what you just said about, you know, how he ties this to his own identities, like his identity as a musician, his identity as a doctor, as a psychiatrist. In his later books, he'll he'll also pull in his other family identities, father, son, husband. And I'm curious, as you're joining me here today as the guest, what identities are you bringing to us as we examine this book? And I'll, I'll share some of mine as well, because that may be that may hint us also to some of the biases we are bringing as we're examining <laughs> this this chapter. So what's what's coming up for you, Rosie? Who, who are you?
1: Yeah, and I noticed he, he was using the word bias. And while I love that, it's also wisdom. It's the biases of kind of what are the lenses that we're using that both cloud our ability to see clearly, but that also create our ability to see what we do see. And so I think there's great, all of the wisdom in the framework is kind of coming from the ways that he sees. So my wisdom um, and my biases both come from um, being an artist. That's a really big one around the sense of creation and creating as an act being one of the most important things for me. And the most important things in interactions with people is wanting to feel this kind of generative creativity and this sense that we can create the world that we want to see. So there's kind of a sense of. Of possibility and of drawing outside the lines that comes from being an artist. I think being an oldest daughter of a single mom who chose to be a single mom, who's a rabbi, and from this, uh, we call it an intimacy constellation, but an alternative queer family has really shaped the way that I see the world and the way that I see what belonging means and inside outside, insidership and outsidership, maybe, and knowing that. I felt deep belonging inside my family and had moments of belonging outside and, and also moments of not belonging inside and outside. And this sense of connection as a really important valence for me and a way of seeing the world and value that I hold. And my last, my, and last, I'm giving myself three. <laughs> my third would be as an educator, um, a teacher and, and someone who really enables spaces of discovery. And I won't say learning because learning has so much connotation in our lives as kind of banking learning, but, but real discovery for people to explore new truths about themselves became true for me, both, I guess, throughout my career in education, that discovery, but also, you know, being a teacher of math in inner city Baltimore and of Arabic over the summers and now teaching adult education, leadership development. That's really important to me.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, what beautiful lenses. To bring to this, and I'll 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 rene- relate to some of them. I I resonate to some of them, even though in different ways. The educator is present here. I'm an educator too, and and still identify as a leadership educator. The tension around belonging and not belonging is there. A little bit of different different identity path, but you know, gay kid, grown up in a pretty heteronormative religious environment and and root seriously not belonging there and and breaking out and then the artist and like the artist in me is a, has a different expression i'm i used to be a dancer i used to be like choreographer so so i'm really connecting to that piece as well in in the sense of i think that what what draws me to your work rosie and i think is 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 um what i find so inspiring i think you have such a wonderful way of bringing the wisdom to use your word the wisdom of art to leadership and leadership development, and and I'm curious. I'd I'd love to uncover some of these these threats here. I'll just name an obvious one because the people listening to us can't hear it. We're both two white people, you know, in this conversation, and so is Heifetz. And so, just naming the the biases we are bringing, we may be bringing from that stance. And you know, one important lens that I think is interesting for us to ex- as we ex- explore. The book throughout the season is what is coming up from different vantage points of identity, vis-a-vis this framework. How does it resonate from different identities? And also, what are some what are some edges, some frontiers we're, we're encountering? So, I'll encourage my guests. I'll encourage you, Rosie, today as well, with the identities you're bringing, to share with us. You know what's what's resonant, but also what's at at what stage are you are you experiencing edges?
1: Really, really appreciate that, and I'm grateful for you naming. Race in a white supremacist society, also on a name that we are all assuming fairly middle class folks, cisgendered folks who have all been to and worked at Harvard, which is puts us in a very particular location. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, reading a book that was written at Harvard, and probably many more that uh, you know we, we haven't even named yet. Um, so
1: many. <laughs> Those are the the salient ones in this moment that stand out to me. But
0: I'm sure there's yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so many gosh, more. If somebody's listening to this 30 years from now, who knows?
1: Exactly. <laughs> but I think that's a really important piece of, of Heifetz's work too, is that he's writing this 30 years ago. So I think that's a really important piece to just name and notice that he was located in that moment and we're located in this moment. And so whoever's located in whatever moments they're in listening to this there's such an interesting interaction there that sometimes it gets to be really blame oriented, like, ah, he should have known. But I also think that there's, there's just something really beautiful talking across those time spans and learning from all of them.
0: Yeah. And then as we'll explore, some of these problems are pretty timeless and, and pretty timely. So let's dive into that. One of the pieces that I'll ask ask my guests every time is, is to bring a, Bring a piece of text with them. And and the briefing here really is, it's a short one. It's a sentence. It's a little quote, but something that really kind of moved you. And that can be like all kinds of emotions that can be on the pleasant, positive spectrum of like, I'm <laughs> deeply moved by by this. But it can also be like, wow, this is this is causing some friction. This is causing some conflict in me. So I don't know what you brought, Rosie, but I'm curious to hear what it is. So what's your... What's your piece of text and would you read it to us?
1: Yeah, there's, there's this moment. So he's Heifetz is, is framing up where he's coming from and all of this. And he's talking about being a musician. And this line just really struck me. He says, music also teaches to distinguish the varieties of silence. Restless, energized, bored, tranquil, and sublime. With silence, one creates moments so that something new can be heard. I just love that.
0: Mm. Would you read it again for us?
1: Music also teaches to distinguish the varieties of silence. Restless, energized, bored, tranquil, and sublime. With silence, one creates moments so that something new can be heard.
0: Thank you. What about this? this passage moves you?
1: I think silence is a really important form of communication. And so often, I think in the general, in so many of the academic spaces that I've been in, let's say, speech and text is the valued form of communication. And the pregnant silences are missed. Whether that's a silence because someone's unhappy, because there's something that can't be said in the space because someone's not in the space. I think we misunderstand silence. And I think it's, this is just a tiny part of what he's saying, but I think in the framework as a whole, it invites us to listen to silence and to what's not being said just as much as it listens to what, as we listen to what is being said.
0: You're an artist, (laughs) Rosie. I'm curious, what images come up for you when you think about silence?
1: The, the blank page, breath comes up and depression, like a moment of real destruction and depression that I went through in my own life comes up as like a real space where there was no speech. There were no words for me, but out of that space came so much creation. And there's this like cycle of creation and destruction that I think silence plays a really important role in.
0: So as I'm imagining those three images, blank page and depression, like I'm also in touch with the uh, the time dimension of silence, the short silences, but also like the long silences, not, but not just the hours of the blank page, but maybe the months or the years of a depression.
1: Yeah. And you saying that makes me think of just the, Length of the universe, really. I mean, we can go really big here, but like the silence that existed well before us and it will exist well after us and kind of puts us in our place with how much speech and how much, how important we think every act of speech is given how much silence there was out in the galaxy before us.
0: Oh, yeah. And probably will be after us.
1: And the, I think there's something beautiful about the ability to read those silences. Like he's differentiating restless from energized, from bored, from tranquil, from sublime. And there's something like about the quality of when we're exercising leadership, understanding those nuances and differences in the people that we're speaking to or not speaking to. And this like deeply human listening that happens in order to create something new.
0: What what experiences have you had in your own life in that realm of like, I'm sure you had many blank pages as an artist, but let's maybe be in the realm of, of, of think a little bit in the realm of like leadership as as addresses, you know, tough social challenges. And maybe there's a connection between artistry and leadership here, but like what, what, what experience comes up for you as you think about those different versions of silence and, you know, mobilizing people to make progress.
1: I taught a workshop last summer with some folks in Alaska and there were. Native folks in the room. And the Native community, that particular community had a wait time before anybody would speak. It was respectful to offer 30 seconds of silence from which could emerge the true thing that you wanted to share. And there were a lot of white folks in this workshop as well, whose wait time ranged from anything from like 0.02 seconds, uh <laughs> raising my own hand here. Uh, I'm Jewish, and we say sometimes we do a form of speaking called high-intensity collaborative overlap where we just jump in on each other like there's negative wait time to, you know, 5, 10 seconds. And 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 we did. We took as a group. We put as a norm. We're going to have 30 seconds of wait time. Now, normally on a Zoom call, if there's 30 seconds of silence, that feels scary as a facilitator, right? You're like, oh, they didn't understand the question. Something's wrong. We put that as a norm, and it was just this deeply respectful of just waiting and seeing what emerges. And at the 30-second mark, a Native woman and a white woman were both about to speak. And we could hear the Native voice, and we wouldn't have heard it if we hadn't committed to that 30 seconds.
0: Will you read the the adjectives again, the, the different qualities of silence?
1: Yeah, we have restless, energized, bored, tranquil sublime yeah
0: i forgot to share one of my um, biases here which is i'm also german and i have n- never used the word sublime and i'm not really even sure what it means what does sublime mean to you
1: in terms of silence i don't even know exactly how to describe it it's like it's the moment after a orchestra finishes playing and you're just sitting there in that warmth and energy and it's silent, but it's like something just happened and you're just witnessing it together. That's the best definition I could give.
0: Yeah. I definitely experienced that that feeling.
1: <laughs> I'm like Googling it now to check if I'm actually correct about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was struck by one piece, Rosie, that, that I saw in your bio, which is that beautiful line that you know you've spent many years in your life trying to be less messy (laughs) and like you know recently realizing like it's actually you know way funnier but maybe also more impactful to lean into the mess and use it as a resource so i'm i'm curious like what what wisdom comes from your own experience with mess that that we can import to the space of this tough leadership work that addresses the the tough problems out there
1: i mean i This became clear to me last year, feeling really deeply depressed and I've had depression various stints throughout my life. Last year was particularly bad as I think a lot of people in this country were pretty dark place at some point during the COVID period. But yeah, just feeling like, man, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I don't know where I'm going. There were just, it felt like I had a million questions and no answers and no sense of self really. And the experience of people loving me through it and then the ability to see that as a strength and see all those questions not as weaknesses or or the questions of like, gosh, what's purpose? What do I care about? What do I want to do? How do I make an impact as like, I have to solve those. But it's the questions themselves that feel worthy to dig into and explore and create with. And, And I think that's the kind of, I used to think that like holding all those pieces meant that they had to come together in a perfect way into a puzzle, um, with one picture. But now it's more like, ooh, the pieces are really fun. <laughs> Let me just hold all these different pieces and find more pieces and play with them. So it's, it's been creating art out of that space combined with a lot of other things of, that, that has brought me more out of that into where I am. But, um, holding that still is very much a part of me. And like loving that as a part of me, rather than trying
0: to get rid of it. So as I'm bringing that inner wisdom into the world, into the tough, messy challenges here, I'm wondering, what puzzle piece are you holding? What are you bringing?
1: I think that like kind of a, a playfulness in the face of chaos. Yeah, that I think like loving the mess is is about not expecting everything to get to be right. But it's also about like, let's get our hands dirty in some clay and let's finger paint and let's scribble with crayons. I I, I now get the groups that I'm with, groups of adults, CEOs and top leadership folks to scribble before we start our workshops and just making a mess. There's something like, I mean, even as I say it, my shoulders relax, right? There's something like we were told when we were four or five, we got to stop making messes and then here we are making messes everywhere and having no idea what to do with the messes that we make, whether it's, we spill something on the carpet or we completely, you know, our whole organization is white and we have terrible problem with, you know, just reenacting white supremacy everywhere. It's like, those are messes. And so we got to just like dive into them and figure them out rather than avoid them.
0: I have one more question. Maybe have more questions for you. I got a little bit of a sense when you were talking earlier about high fits that there may be something that you have an opinion about something that you wrote or said, or you want to clarify something or you're like, like when you were talking about that competition, like, I'm just curious, like, is there anything you want to say about this chapter that hasn't been said yet?
1: <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. So, okay. He goes through the whole chapter talking about leadership is not value neutral. He's talking all about how it's about context and it's about skill and it's, also about the situation and kind of being with the moment. And he's saying it's not value-free, but he doesn't actually name, and he says it's about mobilizing people to do adaptive work. And that's confronting their biases and, and, and changing, doing that real self-reflection. But he doesn't ever say towards what end and who needs to do the self-reflection and how do you define the community, except for in the very last paragraph, He says, it's about what's consonant with the demands of a democratic society. In addition to reality testing, these include respecting conflict, negotiation, a diversity of views within a community, increasing community cohesion, developing norms of responsibility taking, learning and innovation, keeping social distress within a bearable range. And it's like, all of a sudden, he declares all of these amazing values. Later, he says, uh, justice, human welfare and community, liberty, equality. But he doesn't say what any of those mean like what does justice actually mean and so he's saying it's not value free and then he gives these just kind of headline values that happen to be the values of our time but without saying where they come from who decides how does the actual interaction of them look and and who gets to who gets to make that call so it felt like there was this real big question about wait a minute where do those come from and who says and that just happens to be the values that our democratic current society says it holds but that was my big like you don't get to do that
0: so kind of you know his attempt to say like you know something a little you know a little more concrete than make the world a better place which is such a (laughs) such a catchphrase right so what does that mean and then sort of he he names these headlines but you say like you know actually give us a little bit more nuance around that 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 would have been the the hope
1: Little more nuance, and it felt like he was pointing the finger at people who are saying it's value neutral, but then he's offering these values that aren't neutral, but also not clarifying what they mean. And so saying justice as a value just kind of ends up that justice becomes a neutral value because we don't know what it means or who for. So I think he skirts some of the work. Perhaps he gives it back to us, but still. Yeah. I would have liked the explicitness about that skirting and the invitation to, if if the work is indeed being given back, to say, hey, y'all, what are the values by which you are defining your leadership? Because I think it's a really important question. Yeah.
0: Including like figuring out those values, those potentially competing values in communities, and he names that, right? is important leadership work. Like as a, you know, the, the sort of finding the synthesis between, you know, we've seen that in the pandemic, like there's the value of like, we need to have functioning economies, but we also need healthy people. We need to protect people from, from um, not necessarily from catching COVID, but from dying from COVID and from getting like really long-term negative effects from COVID and how do we balance these two values with each other? Right.
1: And I think with, informal authority especially there's this question of who is the us that you're bounding and how big are you bounding it because if you're bounding it with your family for example or within one faction the competing values and things that the work is different and so but that decision of how are you bounding am i bounding for all of the us or am i bounding for the democratic party and am where am i exercising my leadership really matters and is also not value free but there's not a whole lot of there's not even a mention of kind of that kind of consideration. So that was another piece that, but all of that was coming from a sense of, you know, this academic competition thing where I need to like find a hole in what he says so that I can be valid. And I think that's a really interesting piece as well. Leadership in a competitive society too.
0: Love it. And it's welcome here. Rosie, I want to wrap up our session today with inviting you to read your quote one last time. We'll let it land, and then I'll ask you a final closing question about that quote.
1: Music also teaches us to distinguish the varieties of silence. Restless, energized, bored, tranquil. With silence, one creates moments so that something new can be heard.
0: What is that new?
1: I think it's what's here, just what's present and what's already
0: true. What's here, what's present, what's already true, and what for a long time I haven't paid attention to. Thank you so much, Rosie, for being with us today. Coming up, what happens if I change my lens from talking about leadership to actually practicing it? That creates some anxiety, so I'll get some help from a coach. That's after the break.
2: Hey there, this is Andy, facilitator and executive coach at KONU. Thanks for tuning in to On The Balcony. Are you curious to learn more about how to exercise leadership or how to thrive in times of uncertainty and change? Over the next several months, KONU is hosting a series of virtual sessions designed to help you bring some of the ideas from this podcast into your work and your life. We'll explore key leadership distinctions that can help you mobilize people to make progress in times of change, regardless of your job title, your position, or your seniority. We'll also explore practices and mindset shifts that can help you stay anchored and grounded when the heat goes up and take care of yourself over the long haul so you don't burn out. You can learn more and sign up at konu.org slash events. And as a regular listener of this podcast, you can use the code balcony to waive your registration fee. That's konu.org slash events. And the registration code is balcony. Excited to see you there.
0: welcome back to on the balcony in the second part of each episode we'll shift gears towards application i think it's time for me to explore how i might bring a little bit more leadership into the world or at least into my organization my community my client systems and because this is hard work i decided to get some help today this help comes in the form of my colleague andy Cahill, executive coach and Leadership Educator. He has offered to do some real one-on-one coaching with me to help me expand my frontiers. If you've never experienced coaching, here are a few things you need to know. Coaching helps people make progress on a challenge related to their own development. A coach does not give any recommendations about what you should do. It is the client who develops the insights in real time. So today, I'm going to be the client and I can feel vulnerable and also a little messy from time to time. So let's see how this goes. Andy, thank you so much for being here and sharing this practice with me and the folks who are listening. Before we get started, is there anything you'd like our listeners to know about you or your coaching practice? Hey, Michael. Yeah, thanks. Wow. This is so fun to enter this
2: space with you. It will be my first time publicly recording a coaching session that others will hear kind of a general audience. And that's both really exciting for me and also produces a little bit of nervous energy in me. But I think the thing to answer your question, what do I want people to know about my practice? If I could put it into a single word, it would be presence, like to the extent that you and I can get really present to what is meaningful to you, what matters to you and what that means for your leadership then we'll tap into possibilities. I'm not here to tell you how to lead. I wouldn't even know how to tell you how to lead. I'm not here to give you advice or fix things for you. Um, My hope and my aspiration is that we can go deeper than we often get the chance to in the the frenetic pace of our day-to-day lives. So that's that's what I try and bring into all of my coaching with my clients and hope to bring that today here.
0: I'm really excited about that and slightly scared. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, because you're recording, you're, it's like, yeah, we're, all, we're yeah.
0: recording everything here. Yeah, I know. So, Andy, I, I pass the reins over to you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in your hands in this coaching session.
2: Okay. So, Michael, where should we start today? What would make this a powerful conversation for you?
0: At a very simple level, I want to figure out why, where I can practice more leadership. I've been, so I've been kind of starting this, thinking about this podcast project. It's been thinking about my own role in the world. I deeply identify as as coach and leadership educator myself. And at the same time, I really feel like, man, I can't just like, can't just be like a, a coach. Like I also, I have like, I have insights, I have ideas. And, and you know, where is the space for me to be a practitioner? Like, I used to be a dancer and like a choreographer, a coach for, for dancers. And even though, you know, I love the, the coaching as well, the practice really deeply informed it. So, so that's kind of my, my big question. Hmm. What's my leadership opportunity
2: at this moment in the world? And how are you relating to that question? What's my leadership opportunity at this moment in the world?
0: When you ask yourself that, what, what comes into your awareness? Rosie and I in our conversation were talking a lot about silence and the role of silence. And the the piece we didn't touch on a lot, barely, I would say, is is, you know, where what are the leadership opportunities where I am silent instead of like speaking up? <laughs> what are what are what are ways to like uh lean into the tough challenges? Bring in a voice. Maybe it's a little scary, but like what were where are these spaces? And um and there's like two big themes. I mean, high-fit's like we'll we'll be talking about adaptive challenges, you know, the whole time as we read this book, right? But like the two adaptive challenges that are pretty alive for me right now where we are in the world is, you know, one, diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice, as it shows up in the organizations we work with, as it shows up in our own organizations, as it shows up in society, in my life, in my my marriage and my family, um, that's kind of, that feels, and feel closely related to my own identities. And then the second piece that I'm sitting with is, which is kind of this macro challenge out there, the whole, whole world faces it. And I sit here and I honestly like really care about it. I have no clue what to do about it. and And I even see how I'm contributing to the mess with my like you know flights and you know all of the I don't know all of the things i'm I'm not doing right, so those are like two themes and i I think kind of you know what what would be helpful for me to and I would say a coaching session today is like if I could even land on a on a good goal, if I could even land on something that that I could start working on and start like thinking about operationalizing. Uh, where I could explore my own frontiers and edges, that would be great but but even like landing on that on that goal would would feel like progress because it's still like it still feels so huge what what could I possibly do <laughs> around you know racism what could I possibly do around climate change like i I don't even know where to start
2: so if I'm hearing you're right, there's a part of you that wants you to lean into these social and global issues in a meaningful way, and there's another part of you that feels a little bit overwhelmed by where to even start around that. Of the two that you've just presenced, sort of the social justice work, the equity and inclusion work, and the ecological climate work, is there one of those domains that that seems to have particular gravity for you that you want us to look at together today?
0: I think the if I were just talking about like emotional pull, like I think the social justice stuff is more more meaningful and I think that's part of the problem with the climate crisis, right? It's, it's there, but it's also like, until you sit, you know, next to a burning forest and need to evacuate from your house, the urgency is not as close, right? And and I have friends who experience that, and and for them the urgency is very high. So so just because my own primary experience is not as intense, it doesn't mean it's not it's not also acute. So. So as you attend to
2: the part of you that's saying, just because this isn't acute for me, it doesn't mean it's not acute, it doesn't mean it's not real. And you also attend to the part of you that feels the emotional pull towards the social justice work. As you just tune into each of those parts, are there is there one that seems to be speaking to you a little more loudly or needing a little more attention or asking a bit more of you in this moment right here?
0: I wish we could do both, and maybe there's a way to do both. Maybe there's a way to journey, like on my journey, to attend to both. But I I also understand that we need to zoom in on one. (laughs) Um, But I just want to name the laws. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I am asking you to make a choice, and the choice is for right now, not for your lifetime. Let's take social justice. Okay. Okay. And maybe in the spirit of acknowledging the loss and acknowledging the part of you that's going like, hey, we can't just always go to what's closest and easiest. If it feels all right, you could just take a moment to breathe with that and let yourself know that you're going to find a way to address your relationship to the question of climate change when the time is right. And when that feels complete, then we'll
0: go to social justice. Yeah, and even maybe even stronger, Like, I think I want to make a commitment to circling back to the climate change question as I'm journeying through this season here and think about what am I learning? Like if, if, as I'm focusing on social justice, was it, what am I learning in that domain that I could transfer to the climate change adaptive challenge?
2: Beautiful. And knowing what you know about yourself, is there anything you need to do right now to ensure that you'll follow through on that
0: commitment that you've just made? I just need, need to, I just need to write myself a reminder, I guess.
2: Yeah, I look forward to seeing what emerges from that, that thought line and that thread. So let's now honor the emotional pull you feel towards this question of social
0: justice. Where is
2: that pulling you? How is that pulling you?
0: It feels really present in my life, right? I live in an interracial marriage and an intercultural marriage. I work in an international organization. Our client systems, that does leadership development our client systems almost all of them are wrestling explicitly or implicitly with the challenge of diversity equity inclusion and then and then it's with my own identities like i'm holding some of these boundaries with within me you know the the white german cis male kind of all of these identities are kind of historic present and historic oppressor identities then also a gay man, an immigrant, somebody who lives in an interracial marriage are identities that can relate to experiences of being on the margins. And there is something, some intuition that I felt from the moment I've entered the United States that there's something in that German case that could be useful for the American case, if you want, something around how sort of white Germans, many of them, not all of them, but you know, have have wrestled over decades around their very difficult past and sort of made it part of their dealing with the past made, made that part of their their DNA, if you want their cultural DNA, that I find is really missing in the US. There's like such a such a forward looking attitude. Very little historic, particularly from white folks, very little interest in in dealing with the past, thinking about the past, where where I feel like I have something to say that I'm not saying, but I have something to explore. And and I've been sitting with that question kind of a little. So I would love to get some energy and some strategy towards that that piece.
2: Yeah. To what extent do you have a sense of what it is you have to say, or what it is you have to offer?
0: I think at a very high level, it's it's that insight. Unless you lean into the past and deal with the past, even if it's not even if it's not you, even it's your even if it's your ancestors, there is something that is part of your responsibility in examining because you were raised by your ancestors. We We were all swimming in the culture that got created by that. And and to actively dismantle these systems, we deeply need to examine them. And I don't know what that intervention is and how that lands, but I think that is kind of the inside. You know, as I'm, as I'm being here as a as an immigrant and and sort of getting myself situated in this country, I'm like, I think that would be helpful. That would be one. It's not like it's not going to solve everything, but I think this is one piece of the puzzle that I think may be useful. Hmm. So you hold this intuition. You have some sense that your
2: unique, the unique intersection of your identities maybe positions you to share this intuition with in American contexts. One direction we could go now is to start to help you work out what it would look like for you to make an intervention somewhere in your organization, your community, your family system, wherever, like what would that intervention be? The other way we might go is to look at what, if anything, is has stopped you from making that intervention up until now.
0: Hmm. I mean, even now, as I'm, as I'm talking about it, it feels like risky. It feels exposing. I'm sweating. I'm literally sweating. My operates are sweaty. (laughs) (laughs) So there's something there around that, that resistance. So I would love to brainstorm with you at some stage and also for myself about what that could look like and what that could be. But like, but like, I, I think it's, That's, that's where maybe we could spend a few more minutes today to like, think like what's going on there. What's, what's holding me back to.
2: Yeah. Beautiful attention to your own physical experience of the question of resistance. There's something here that's activating your, your nervous system right now. And that's a pretty good clue that you're entering territory. That's uncomfortable and a bit risky right here. Right now you're saying like, even talking about this feels a little risky with me, and I'm assuming that's because you know other folks might hear it if we release this recording, what feels risky about it? What's the risk you're in touch with?
0: Yeah, let me just sit with that question. Yeah. So the first thought that comes to mind is, there's so many ways I could be wrong. I'm not a historian. I only have my lived experience as a German growing up. First of all, the German case is not pretty, right? as ugly as germany's history is as ugly as also the the dealing with the history like it's it's like we sometimes say like well the germans leaned into their past but like you know they're germans no like there's parts of germany there's we have still a lot of anti-semitism xenophobia racism in germany uh these days so like you know who are we to like say like you know look at us right so that is that is certainly like there is a worry that that it will come across as, you know, I'm here like preaching or teaching, like, which isn't not the intuition, but it could be the impact, uh, or not the intention, it could be the impact, right? That's that's one piece. Second piece is how else could I be wrong? Is contexts are different, right? Racism in America is very different to you know, Nazi Germany. It's like people have have started to like draw some connections around the systemic natures and the I love that that book cast. Uh, reading that book cast that was drawing the, some of these connections it was fascinating for me to to explore. But then again, like it's also it is also very different. And in a way, all of these experiences are very unique and hard to compare and contrast and and build from. So that's kind of the, the second anxiety that people will say, like, "Hey, this is great for Germany, but it doesn't. It's not relevant here because that, those other the reasons." And then the third thing, Andy, is I mean, this is triggering. This is hard for people to lean into. I mean, I didn't have a a face to face with my grandparents to have these conversations with them. I had them in my heart and with my parents and with my peers, but then I visited the you know memorial sites or the termination camps, but like asking people to say, like, hey, what did your grandparents do? And how were they contributing? to like, um, you know, that, that is really triggering work. And I think in a way it's necessary, but I have like, I'm like also scared about that because, because like here, here here comes the, here comes like, I have not thought about that yet, but like I'm an immigrant in this country and, and I, I also wanna belong. I don't wanna come here and alienate everybody who I also wanna, right? So, so what is that right mix between
2: You have a voice exercising caution. Michael, you're not an expert. You have another voice slowing you down. It might not be appropriate in this context. You just might not translate. And you have a third voice. It sounds like really protecting you against triggering emotion around this very charged issue because you want to belong here and be home here. And as you get in touch with those those sort of three forces, all in their own way, working to keep you from making an intervention, is there one in particular that if we helped you get some space around, you might feel 10% more able to try out an, ex, an experiment or a leadership intervention in this space?
0: Let's start with the belonging one, the last one.
2: Yeah, that one felt like the most charged. Where do you know, like, it's likely that that fear of belonging lives somewhere in or around your body. Can you get in touch with that anywhere in your
0: in your physical experience? It's in the heart. I'm touching my heart.
2: Yeah. And what does it feel like in your heart as you get in touch with that that energy of keeping you safe and helping you belong?
0: Like warm, but also like a little fragile, a little delicate, a little vulnerable. Mm-hmm.
2: So maybe just take a moment. You're already there, but really take a moment to connect your hand to your heart. And with as much compassion and non-judgment as you can muster, gently bring your conscious attention here to your heart, where you feel this fragility and this warmth. And as you bring your attention there, notice if there are any other sensations or emotions or thought patterns that
0: start to come up. Anything else that's here for you? Man, my heart is also racing. It's like beating. It's like,
2: (laughs) Yeah as you feel that racing, are there any accompanying images or emotions or thought patterns that are arising?
0: You know, Andy, it kind of feels right. It feels like this is where it belongs. Mm. I'm struck by
2: a moment ago, you talking about the fear of losing belonging. And in this moment, you're in touch with this is where it belongs. And I wonder, as you just presence yourself to the rightness, that this is where it belongs. What what becomes possible for you now that wasn't possible f- five minutes ago when you're only speaking to the fear?
0: Like the belonging I'm actually looking for is the belonging that is generated, that is created in that that moment of really getting to know people, really deeply connecting with them, including the non-so-pretty sides. I mean, that's the belonging I want. I want to hear the stories, the complexity, the you know, that's like, I don't need the superficial, like, yay, everything is great. Everything is already like, that's not the belonging I'm looking for anyways.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. And as you get in touch with that level of belonging that actually you have a need for that, that inspires and motivates you, is there somewhere in your life where if you were to move towards this issue of social justice... And make the risk of talking about the past or history or healing, like where might where are you called to make that take that risk in service of deeper belonging?
0: Oh, this is beautiful. I mean, this makes me very happy. I think I have an experiment I can try next next week, which is entering conversations with people that I feel close to. Like I'm seeing a couple of friends this weekend that I come over for a barbecue to my place. that i have some trust with some belonging with what feels like right to like begin like sharing some of that intuition that i'm holding inside me and and carefully inquiring a little bit about their perspective on it and their own family history and ancestry and how they've been thinking about history and maybe just trying out this this fear of belonging there for a moment right not yet not yet trying to move the needle on on social justice here but just seeing like is that the belonging to to those friends at stake as i'm as i'm dipping my toe into the waters here
2: so if i'm hearing you right this opportunity with your friends this weekend is a chance to try out the validity of the the belief you're holding that if you talk about this stuff you may be rejected and lose your belonging and it sounds like the thing you're going to be tracking for is something like, do I feel more connected to these people or less after having talked about them. Yeah. Okay.
0: How does that feel
2: as a commitment to make?
0: It feels right. It feels exciting. It feels a little scary, but it feels like the... <laughs> Maybe not like too the...
2: scary. We're not asking it's... you to go like, no. give a public talk on...
0: No, exactly. I like a lecture on... like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Great. And knowing what you know about yourself, is there anything else that you need to put in place to ensure that you'll follow through with this experiment?
0: Well, Andy, would you would you do another session with me where we can check in on that? <laughs> <laughs> what is there? An episode two of this podcast, Michael? I suppose I could come I to. think so. I think so. We'll we'll talk again in a but it would be it would be great to check in and, and no, seriously, it would be great. You know, I mean we're we're not just talking on this podcast, you're also a colleague and it would be yeah. great too continue to be in conversation with you about it
2: yeah whether or not i'm back again i am absolutely happy to maybe in our next next week in one of our connections i'll try and make a point to just ask about how it went
0: thank you okay talk again soon thanks Andy. on the balcony we'll be back with episode two we'll be joined by mitzi johnson former Speaker of the House in the state of Vermont. Kind of the Nancy Pelosi of Vermont, really. We'll discuss chapter two of Leadership Without Easy Answers with the title to lead or to mislead. Intriguing. I'll invite you to read the chapter yourself and explore with Mitzi and me how systems can get really heated when confronted with tough challenges and how they react to that heat. For Mitzi and her legislature, that heat was around gun violence. Here's a preview on how it felt when the police caught a potential shooter in the state of Vermont.
1: All of these social problems compounded in one place that just became this cauldron that was simmering anger. And that's the moment that knocked me out of equilibrium. And uh, and I remember forwarding that those affidavits to my leadership team saying, read these carefully, hug the people you love and come back Monday morning. That was a Friday afternoon that I sent it like come back Monday morning, being ready to work our tails off. And I had an unexpected partner in the Republican governor who was a lifelong gun owner.
0: Also. Andy will join me again to debrief my experiment and help me continue to work on my leadership challenge. If you like the show, press the subscribe button and leave a review. That helps others to connect to this really powerful framework. On the Balcony is brought to you by Konum, growing and provoking leadership. We're produced by Podigy, Editing, Riley Byrne, Daniel Link, Tim O'Brien, Christy Parrott and Emily Weiner. Coverat, art by Kenneth Amojo and Rosie Greenberg. Our music is called Change in Blue by Hannah Gill and The Hours. Thanks for listening. We'll see you for episode two, On the Balcony.